Edge Dwellers Cafe is a regularly irregular, long-form, interview-based podcast featuring conversations about politics, environment, and mental health in a world on edge. I'm your host, Ben Habib, international relations academic, environmental educator, and neurodiversity advocate who likes having a chat over a hot coffee. My caffeinated conversations try to make sense of the different kind of edges that define us, divide us, and shape how we interact with each other in a world that's under stress, and what it means to be a little different. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. The last couple of years through the COVID pandemic have been deeply traumatic for the higher education sector in Australia, with mass redundancies and restructures, campus communities decimated, and the deliberate sabotage of universities by a now former federal government that was enamoured with culture war, anti-intellectualism, and an ingrained ideological hatred for expertise, which had a recalcitrant agenda for higher education that has been enabled by university managerial elites. It's been the final impact of a slow-motion train wreck in higher education that was building for a long time prior to the pandemic. This has been a disaster for both staff and students across the sector, but worst hit have been those colleagues precariously employed on casual and short-term contracts. Precarity and exploitation have become the business model du jour in universities. This creates toxic workplaces. It treats university workers as less than human units of production to be used up and discarded. It undermines the productivity of academic research and teaching. It creates enormous stress and an intolerable physical and mental illness burden. It filters down to undermine our students' experience of the university. And it's badly eroding culture and collegiality on campus. In short, it's disgusting and indefensible. But it doesn't have to be this way. In this visit to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, I'm joined for a special panel discussion with my brilliant colleagues Anastasia Kangere, Emily Foley and Pan Karanikolas from the Latrobe Casuals Network, which is a volunteer group of casualised workers at Latrobe University who are dedicated to improving working conditions for casualised and insecure workers. In the discussion, we talk about the impacts of widespread precarity for workers in the university sector, along with systemic wage theft from casual staff, the deliberate evisceration of universities during the pandemic, and building collective power and a solidarity of care in university workplaces. A quick call to action before we jump into the episode. Please indulge me for a quick plug to help pay the bills. Don't forget to support the EDC by clicking on the like or subscribe buttons and or leave a review, if you're suitably inspired, on whatever platform that you're listening on. You can also help support the production of the podcast by shouting a coffee for the EDC that helps to offset the cost of researching, hosting, editing and equipment for the podcast via the Edge Dwellers Cafe page on Ko-Fi, which is linked to in the show notes. Now let's get to it. I give you my conversation with Anastasia, Emily and Pan from the Latrobe Casuals Network. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. Anastasia, Pan and Emily, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hi, Dwellers of the Edge. You're all members of the Latrobe Casual Network. How did this come about and... What got you involved? Yeah, I think um, Em's pointing at me because I think I was the first of the three of us to join. As I recall, we had one – it was very strange timing. We had one physical meeting before the pandemic hit. And so completely kind of coincidentally, it was just like, let's get a casuals network going at La Trobe. And it had been something that I'd sort of been vaguely talking to some people about for a while and sort of I'd been – making excuses because I was finishing my PhD. And so then I finally, um, we sort of finally got around to it and we had a meeting. I mean, the main thing that happened was that the pandemic hit. And so that one physical meeting hadn't hadn't kind of naturalized into something really clear, a really clear organizational structure. And so then the um, pandemic hit and we moved to online. 
it was all a bit of a blurry period, I think, because mm-hmm. we were combining with really going into these hard lockdowns. But I think as we know really recently, I think it was on the drum the other day that they were talking about it, is that we know that the cohort that were the most hit by the pandemic um, was casuals. So the most significant number of job losses are casuals, which conveniently now a lot of people are rehiring, which is you know incredibly frustrating because often those conditions are less secure than they were to begin with, which isn't saying too much anyway. But yeah, that's sort of how we kind of, I mean, that's my reflections on how we came about. I think, yeah, we were a really, I don't want to say frustrated, but I think it was a really sort mm. of angry time where we just saw, I guess, our interests not really being represented in many spaces of our workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess for me, I have been a casual uh, and across several different kind of universities since about 2016. Um, and in 2020, I started a PhD here at Trobe. So I decided that this was where I was going to base my getting involved with the Casuals Network. And yeah, I met Anastasia at the first in-person sort of event, really, that I had at Trobe was that initial mm-hmm. Casuals Network meeting. And then COVID-19 pandemic really um, blew, blew out. That was, yeah, how I got involved. And then like since since then, I think... There's been a lot of momentum around, like, yeah, things like around COVID, but also, like, the massive crisis that how that played out for universities. So it was a lot of activity at that time. And probably another really important thing for the Trobe Casuals Network has been our interactions with other Casuals Networks. Mm. That's always been crucial. I mean, yeah, Pan just said how, like, we have to kind of decide which – um, university, which branch we're going to base our work at because we always – you know, so many of us work all over the place. Um, and those links that we had, so like the big survey that we ran in 2020, we got a heap of the wording from the Monash Casuals Network who got a heap of their wording from the UC Casuals Network and we have c- consistently swapped and shared approaches and techniques and skills. Yeah, we've got we've had members of Casuals Networks who have run really successful campaigns and disputes come and talk to our Casuals mm-hmm. Networks. Um, so it's been really lovely actually in terms of, sharing Mm. um, and also campaigning yeah there's been a lot of solidarity across Mm. different institutions as a result of these casuals networks which is Mm. yeah I guess one of the sort of silver linings of this whole yeah thanks COVID (laughs) it seems like the pandemic and the associated stresses let's say there's been a real galvanizing moment because a lot of these problems are not new they've been bubbling for a long time and reached a critical mass is is that how it felt for you that this provided a moment for organising that might be, maybe wasn't there before? Look, it's hard for me to tell, I think, because I am quite um, new to the sector, to be honest. And, and so, that, you know, I don't want to – there's been three restructures at La Trobe, for example, two of which I haven't been a part of. So, But I do feel as though there was definitely a shift from, you know, when I started working at La Trobe, so, you know, 2019, for example, even within the year – um, definitely. I don't think I'd been approached at all pre-pandemic by anyone from, you know, the branch, for example, the, the union branch, or I'd seen sort of casuals getting together and talking about their conditions. It was almost this sort of accepted, uh, this accepted idea that we were just sort of accepting these really bad conditions. So, I mean, I would say yes, that there was a gal, like we definitely saw a, an energy that I hadn't at all experienced the year before, but I don't know about what you two think. Well, I think the pandemic taught people a lot of incredibly powerful political lessons. The way that Mm. we, as ordinary, you know, particularly myself as someone who's kind of white and middle class and cis, there's not, there's not necessarily heaps of uh, moments in my life where I can experience the Mm. way that governments do not care about me in a really profound personal way. And the pandemic was an excellent opportunity to um, experience that. So it taught us that kind of political lesson, particularly like those of us in the university sector where we were just shut out of JobKeeper. The the federal government was extremely clear that they were very happy to watch the university sector fail. And then obviously bosses of the university sectors were very happy to pass all of that damage straight on to Casuals, you know, who could forget um, John Dewar sending out a reassuring email to all staff at the start of the pandemic saying, don't worry, guys, I've sacked a whole lot of casuals and saved $7 million. So you can all feel a lot happier, which, you know, really goes to show um, his 
thoughts about us. I spent several days after that email not being sure whether I still had a job. I was coordinating a subject and teaching in two others and I I genuinely didn't know if that email was perhaps dismissing me, which it was for some of my uh, colleagues. And the other thing, the other lesson I think that um, the pandemic um, taught us was also the weakness of our structures of resistance. Mm. So, and I'm thinking there in particular of the leadership of the NTU um, coming up with this jobs protection framework, which was a deal that they hammered out in private, behind closed doors with bosses and then kind of imposed onto the union leadership. And I think what that taught us, which is probably a lesson that had been bubbling away there for a while, but again, it brought it to a point, was that we are going to have to start working really hard as rank and file members if we are ever going to see wins, if we're ever going to see unionism that can deliver the kinds of conditions that we need to be living under. Yeah, I don't think I have too much to add. I just think that the the whole context of COVID-19 really exposed what was already there. And I think that standing, if you can stand back a little bit now, I think what people were saying at the time was that COVID-19 was a perfect excuse for both government mm-hmm. and corporate universities to, to ram through reforms and changes that they've, they've always wanted to do. So there's data now that shows that, like, more people were cut than were necessary and the, also on top of that like for students like the jobs ready graduate framework was also pushed through in that time um, which has really hiked fees for um, particular degree students so yeah I think that was shown quite clearly and people were forced to respond to it in a way that yeah if COVID hadn't happened perhaps it wouldn't have been as urgent. And I think we saw a galvanization as well between professional and academic staff that I don't think we'd seen. I think there had just been such a separation of those two groups of the university sector. You know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think, you know, in these meetings that we were having trying to organise, you know, there was a mix of academic and professional staff um, and it was a really, you know, especially with the professional staff being, you know, gutted consistently sort of over and over again in these sorts of really awful ways of just, um, you know, closing departments and then making people um, reapply for their jobs in which there were less jobs than what there were beforehand I think there was just a, a sense of um, mm. finally more than I had experienced before of that we are all not in it together but we are all you know workers in this really terrible system or structure mm. and I think what professional staff experienced during and after the pandemic is a perfect example of what Pan was just saying about that this stuff was all bubbling away anyway mm. So because we've recently seen data come out about the cuts that happened over the course particularly of 2021 and professional staff were the hardest hit by those cuts. Professional staff already being uh, overall lower paid than academic staff in universities. And it's really interesting because if we think of the direct impacts of COVID, the borders were closed um, so international students couldn't get here and that's obviously an impact on the academic side of university work but then it was actually the professional staff who copped it in terms of redundancies and I think that comes back to what Pan said is that this was bosses not wasting a crisis and actually implementing cuts that they had planned for a long time beforehand and just kind of brought them them forward which some bosses have actually been fairly explicit about. Yeah, it seems to be a very narrow ideological vision mm-hmm. within this current government about what they want the university sector to be which seems to have great resonance with managerial elites across the sector mm-hmm. who do not at all represent the rank and file of the workforce. Mm. Uh, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say about it. I'm so fucking horrified <laughs> yeah. by it. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it's abysmal and it's it's every person's – one of the things that I keep saying to people when I sort of try to get them interested in fights for the soul of the NTU is that – if you know anyone that you care about that might one day want to study or work at a university, you've got to be interested in this in this fight because this is about this is about the you know the working conditions of all the workers in all the different um, aspects of the university, but it's also about the conditions for students and the the future of possibility for students. It's something I think about for my own kids you know, sort of 15 years from now, what kind of university is going to be left for them to go to? It's frankly a chilling thought and it's a pretty strong political call to arms, I think. Not to mention all of the businesses that service the university, both within and outside of the university that are affected by this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole extended network and community of affected people. 
Yeah, that's so true. I just don't I don't want to add to that. It's like thinking about how, you know, a huge part of communities and universities are. It's it's broader than just education. Obviously a huge part of this story is the issue of wage theft for casual staff. There's been a lot of publicity around this uh, over the last couple of years and some wins for casual staff at different institutions around the country. Can you speak to this? What's your experience of wage theft and, and how you see this particular issue playing out? Yeah, so from like the perspective of our work in the Trove Casualist Network in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, we ran a survey um, to collect some data. And so out of 140 respondents, we were asking particularly around like how wage theft happens at our institution. And some of the key things that came out of that were kind of unsurprising. Like the, the main ways, I guess, that wage happens all across um, the sector because it's so you know, it's so core to university business and so embedded. But the, the three um, kind of main ways it happens are non-payment for essential work, so just all the stuff that you do, you, you emails with students, pastoral care, things like that. Misclassification of work, so being instructed to kind of enter in codes for, for you know, work that's paid um, at a lower rate than what you should be paid. And then the illegal use of peace rates, I guess in terms of the really kind of striking things that came out of that survey, um, 63% of the people um, that we um, asked in the survey said they had been underpaid um, for their work and 49% that they would fear repercussions to just ask to be paid for the hours that they um, had actually worked. So that's about one in four, one in four workers. And we presented that, um, some of that data at the Senate um, hearing into unlawful underpayment recently which had a lot of really strong presentation there from casuals across like multiple universities about how wage theft occurs. So in terms of the campaign that we're doing at the Latrobe Casuals Network, M and Pan have done more of the sort of brain work of this in terms of how it exactly works as an industrial dispute because they've been doing the kind of the, the, the grunt work on this. But one thing that I will say is that um, so we've, we've focused on marking payment, so piece rates for marking payment, which is where so academic casual staff get told you have this many students this is how many hours you have um, to mark their work and it's never enough time of course and it just keeps getting cut down to more like more and more horrifically not enough so the reason that we've chosen that is that it's it's a very it's a very easy point to prove in in terms of industrial law in terms of that the pay the underpayment is unlawful so it's a quick way to demonstrate a much broader point which is that all casual workers are experiencing underpayment and that the experience of insecure work creates the conditions for wage theft that's why bosses like it because they get to exploit us that's that's exactly the mechanism of of how insecure work works Um, and so that's why we've chosen this one specific campaign to focus on which obviously doesn't um, include research staff and it doesn't include all the casuals who work in heaps of different professional roles that don't involve marking and who also experience underpayment, um, but who don't have that kind of neat home goal. So what we're what we're working on really is building the case, is building that momentum. And you, you've sort of seen it roll through from Unimelb to RMIT to Monash to where we want to keep that momentum going so that we can expand it out and get more wins for more people and ultimately uh, abolish casualization. And I also think in the short term as well, it's why it's so important to have such a strong union because, yes, we've got the marking um, dispute that we're working on, but a lot of the big issues for teaching staff specifically, so, yeah, again, a sort of smaller pool amongst a sea of casuals, but there's so much um, in this sort of rolled-up rate, which is the idea that in our enterprise bargaining agreement we have a a rolled-up rate that is supposed to take into account everything. So it's, you know... For a tutor, it's, say, three hours, so two hours of preparation and an hour to run the tutorial, for example. And that's supposed to take into account, you know, attending the lectures so that you're aware of what's going on, doing the, um, running the tutorial, planning the tutorial, student consultations, answering email questions, which we know really escalate, you know, dramatically increased mm. during the pandemic because, surprise, students need extra support. 
Um, and, and that's all stuff that you need a really strong union to be able to try and fight back on because this is all stuff around what's in our EA. And mm-hmm. so that's, and so I think that's, that's just a, a really strong focus of ours at the Casuals Network as well, I think, is to really push that moving mm-hmm. forward. Because, yeah, it's hard to – it's hard, you can do it, but it's a lot harder to kick for wins when you don't have the EA basis there. And so we're often dealing with these – yeah, these these EAs that aren't – that are already allowing a lot of practices that we think are super exploitative. And so – and that kind of constrains what kinds of campaigns that we can run at this – at the moment. I mean, if there are casuals listening into this – we're always looking for more people to come on board and, and yeah, get in touch with us through the Casuals Network. Um, you know, specifically related to this, if you've got some questions, you know, come to a meeting. We're, you know, open to all casuals at Trobe. So I guess we'll maybe pop some info on your page or something and people can get in touch with us if they've got any questions about this specific dispute because it is quite complicated um, and it's quite scary. But, yeah, we deserve more. So I think mm-hmm. get in touch. Yeah, check out the show notes. All relevant links will be in there. Ideally, what do the wins look like in terms of changing the structure of academic work? Okay, so the the big the big goal is for university workers to run universities. University workers are the experts. So if you want to know how to run a really great library library in a university, you go and ask the librarians. Um, I actually had a wonderful experience uh, with that. I, I highly recommend if anyone gets the opportunity to sit in a librarian down and buy them a glass of wine and ask them how libraries should be run, you should definitely do that. <laughs> um, but also also we need to – we obviously also need to create the collective power so that we can then um, make those amazing visions a reality. You know, IT workers know how to run IT systems and how to teach um, the rest of us how to use the IT systems that they create academics know how to do research they know how to teach students students know how to be taught and how they what they need from uh, their teachers uh, one of the biggest kind of values that drives me to unionism is this is this sense of collective self-determination which is what we are so completely lo- what we have lost so profoundly in universities at this stage I was speaking to a colleague recently who's really like I don't consider myself sort of super young and this person is definitely not much older than me but she can remember when department heads were elected democratically by the workers in that area and at at most she's 15 years older than me and the fact that there has been this stark de-democratization of the university sector in that period of time is really is is a very kind of strong example to me of how how far we've fallen and how far we have to climb back. And I think the deterioration of conditions goes alongside that so much so that it's so difficult to, you know, it's so demoralising and difficult for workers to fight back. So a similar discussion is I was speaking to someone who says that they can remember, you know, less than 10 years ago people were fighting back at having, you know, 15 to 20 students in a classroom, mm-hmm. whereas in, you know, in COVID in Zoom classrooms we were teaching sometimes we had up to 50 enrolled. Mm-hmm. You know, now they're 30, you know, 30-person classrooms. Um, so when you're being overloaded as well, that's right. I think it really erodes that in any sort of capacity to try and push back and fight back against what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that really speaks to also like how demoralized students often are in like a very corporatized university where also universities are like corporations and competing with each other. And I think, yeah, like the ultimate end goal is like workers and students control the university and that's the ultimate end point for this, I think. But, it, yeah, in the meantime, I think that there are some things that we can do now, like abolish peace rates and more external oversight over, like, the the hours that casuals are working because we can't trust university bosses to, to do that um, and be accountable. Mm. And we need the right to go on strike. It is our ultimate weapon. That is currently we have so – it is so limited that the periods in which we can go on strike, like you have EBAs just for years where you cannot strike, and that is a huge – I think that is the central issue. As we are talking, mm. University of Sydney, there's a strike going on there. What's the significance of this event for, for us and for everyone else in the sector? Because this is a seems like something that's pretty huge. I think, yeah. I mean, I was actually going to sort of bring it up in, in maybe the last question. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think I've in the last two days felt better 
<laughs> than I have in actually quite a while um, because it's just so amazing to see the solidarity um, and what I mean by that, there are students out there with teachers. There are conservatory teachers on a picket line playing music. Um, it's raining. The president's riding around on a bike to different picket lines. People are on digital picket lines. People are saying, my whole Twitter is just full of either people not at UCID expressing solidarity or people at UCID out there. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not the, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in terms of bargaining for UCID. But, you know, you said, what does a win look like? I mean, for us, that would, you know, having a scene like that is something that I'm dreaming of. Yeah. And, and another thing that was, I mean, everything was amazing about the UCID strike, but one thing that was stood out so much was how much casual workers and insecure work were right up the front of those issues. And again, it wasn't something that casual workers themselves had to had to push on their own. It was something that all the workers in the university understood as being something that was that was a threat to themselves as well. So it was standing not kind of uh, not in a kind of charity uh, a kind of charitable way of saying, oh, we're so worried about you, but standing next to somebody because you understand that you cannot win without building that solidarity um, between each other. And that was, I think, incredibly powerful about the use of strikes as well. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. What do you want our union to look like so uh, that we can win? Mm. I mean, I might take this one because um, some of you might know that I'm running for, gen- for General Secretary of the NTEU this year, which is because I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I guess the first answer that I'm going to give to this question is that what our union should look like is very different to, to what it currently looks like. So I guess part of my answer is going to be pretty similar to the vision for the university, which is collectively self-determined. So... The, the great organizing guru, um, Jane McAlevey quotes this phrase. It's not actually hers, but she quotes it where she says, tell, tell the workers it's their union and then act that way. And when we think about how to build collective power, the way that you have to do that is through the collective. There isn't, I'm not talking about a kind of moral imperative here. I'm talking about strategically what will and will not work. And the only thing that will work is building collective power with the people who you want to win with. And what that means is trusting them and giving them, seeking to empower them to create them as leaders, as part of a collective movement that is driven by everyone and that is um, pushed by grassroots rank and file power. So that's what the union needs to look like for us to start thinking about any of these kinds of massive victories that, that we desperately need. Political Leverage 101. One thing I have noticed about our union is it's become more of a service union over the years and it's, just, it's forgotten how to organise well mm-hmm. and it really shows in, in how we respond to crisis events. One kind of thing that I talk, I mean, I think I, talk, I mention this to you every time we have these sort of discussions and I think, you know, it is difficult in the university sector to organise university workers because I just keep coming back to often I don't think we as university workers actually envision ourselves or see ourselves as workers and so there's this real individual sort of mentality especially you know in academic stuff I think um that's been constructed and created that you know you are um you know you need to be the best in order to you know do have any form of security for example or or anything and you know you're not just uh you know it's this sort of rhetoric of oh well we're you know university you know this sort of ivory tower kind of language that I just is of like one incorrect mm. and two I think we allow ourselves to get caught into that narrative so that we accept all of these really bad conditions mm-hmm. um and I think so I, I, so I do acknowledge that it's hard therefore but I think that's that's why it's so necessary to organize to organize university workers so much and for workers themselves to see themselves as workers within a system like this um and to start organizing each other in your workplaces right start to have those conversations because I don't think we're having those conversations at a local level I think on the on the kind of service union front I mean, yes, it's you're, you're you're absolutely right. And the difficulty with the service union uh, model is that it's just never going to be able to scale large enough to the, to, to extract the kinds of wins that we need. Um, you, you're always going to be dealing with putting out individual fires here and there, 
And I think the reason that the service model can be attractive is that again, you, you end up with a very, a very kind of disempowered, fractured kind of clientele membership who don't expect to have democratic determination over the goals and priorities and actions of the union. What they hope for is that they will receive industrial advice in a timely manner when they request it. And look, let's be honest, often even that doesn't happen. But there's certainly not a kind of expectation that you own this collective and then you drive it. And so I think it's I think it's attractive if you're more interested in kind of maintaining power than you are in growing and divesting yourself of power. You can see how it embeds itself in universities. Universities are a very vertically stratified hierarchy and people throughout it have different interests and then all of the systemic incentives are around competition and competing with each other. And you can see how grant processes, even for internal funding, and, and any kind of resourcing is organised by the university and the broader sector in a competitive way to keep us at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. And, God, it's amazing how much productive time we piss away mm-hmm. on mm. these competitive processes. So managements are quite happy for us to lose productivity to keep us atomized, mm-hmm. which is another thing I find disgusting and indefensible in an environment that they say is fiscally constrained. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I mean, this is, you know, we're thinking a- academia, but this is what I was talking about with this sort of, you know, spill and fill or whatever we want to call it of professional staff. You know, it happens consistently every mm-hmm. few years across different universities. Um, I think for that very purpose, where it's there is slightly less jobs than there were before. And now you all have to compete against each other for those jobs that are less and less. And, and, you know, we were seeing some of these professional staff and what they were going through in order to try and reapply for their own jobs um, with a bunch of their other colleagues. Mm. You know, it's just, it was, it's heartbreaking. It still is. And we just know that it's, you know, there's going to be some crises, quote unquote, in a few years when things are settled and it's going to uproot it all again. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, professional and academic. Related question management union busting tactics they do all kinds of different things we've seen a lot of it over the last year what ways have you seen different kind of tactics and strategies that management has used to try and keep us divided i don't know i would just guess i would say that casualization kind of itself like the the mass level of casualization that the universities have is a real non-union busting too but it's it's the exploitation is so ingrained and it's a real disincentive to, like, you want to maintain your ability to get a, another contract and keep your employment. So there's a real disincentive towards um, rocking the boat. Like, even that survey data where just even asking to be paid for the hours <laughs> that you worked um, was, it like, a very common experience. People were too scared to even do that. So how many people would be scared to then, like, get involved with their union or do a risky activity like taking a petition around in their workplace or something like that? So I think that, yeah, it's the it's that, that force that casualization has that keeps people in that state. But in saying that, like, casuals are at the forefront of everything that has been happening around wage theft. We have we have nothing to lose. Like we have everything to gain by being involved um, in unions in the, you know, it's like the, that big uptick in like rank and file activity that we were speaking about just through casuals networks, which have flourished and been really active, but particularly around wage theft and working and collaborating with each other. So there's that upside of it as well. I guess kind of thinking about it, the, you know, obviously we've been really taking a lot of inspiration from the amazing workers over at the Amazon Workers Union and what I'm hearing about those sorts of union busting, you know, which is like you're not allowed to speak at the union while you're working and those sorts, you know, spending millions of dollars to bring in people to try and, and bust union organising. I don't, I mean, it, I don't really see that, I think, building on from what you're saying, Pan, it's just that that fear is so entrenched that I don't even think there needs to be this sort of, I mean, it's omnipresent no matter what this idea of advocating for your, I mean, it stemmed from where you would would take these poor conditions because they were means to end of an ongoing career, you know, years and years ago. But obviously that's not happening anymore. But I think it doesn't matter um, to people. It's just, yeah. And just that that atmosphere of of insecurity, which permeates beyond 
casual staff as well. You know, Em mentioned Spill and Fills before, which are a great way to sort of smash worker solidarity and make everyone feel at risk. Um, there's also a, a culture of blocking professional staff doing professional development so that they can expect to advance through the organisation so that they kind of constantly feel on tenterhooks or unsure. Actually, I saw that one of the UCID uh, claims on the EBA that they were going on strike about today was to enforce that uh, intern- jobs that could be advertised internally were advertised internally for professional staff to allow a kind of expectation that that I'm invested in this institution and I and I and I'm a part of this community and therefore I'm I can expect to continue to be here um, and because this is obviously something that applies to people who are classed as being on permanent contracts but there's a real attempt to make sure that everyone always feels on unsure at all times um, and it's yeah it's 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 effective it's not it's not insurmountable I think crucially and I think because Pan um, said before that you know casuals have been at the foref- have been at the forefront of so much uh, rank and file activism in the NTEU and I think that um, a big reason for that is that we know that we can do the thing that everyone says that you're not supposed to be able to do which is to organize casual workers that's kind of been the NTEU's excuse for for well for decades really is that oh they're too you know they're too hard to find they're too scared they're too hard to organize it's like well we can do it so it turns out that that this thing that's theoretically impossible we can do and that and that gives you a very strong sense of like every everything that gets thrown at you you can overcome if you do if you practice good unionism um and the three of us with some comrades were yesterday um just at a training session about this called organizing for power by uh, Rosa Luxemburg Institute and Jane McAlevey and some other fantastic people to learn just that uh to learn to learn how to win which is something that we need to see a lot more of a lot of really tight disciplined strategic attempts to increase our capacity to deliver wins if a student's listening to this mm. or a member of staff, one of our colleagues, and they're thinking, okay, what is good unionism? What are my steps? What do I do? What would you recommend? Well, look, first and foremost, it's, and I think about this in, in my own department, and yeah, we're going to these training sessions because, you know, we're learning, like I'm learning. I think particularly as a sort of younger academic, there's all these power dynamics that you're trying to navigate as well. But fundamental and core is just having conversations with mm-hmm. people in your workplace. We don't talk enough. COVID's really stopped a lot of that from happening. There aren't as many people wandering the corridors of the department anymore. People are overloaded with work. And really, it's about having conversations with workers around you, you know, finding out what are the shared concerns that you all have. You know, it sounds very simple, but actually, this is some of the biggest stuff that we talk about when we talk about deep organizing and Jane McAlevey's work around deep organizing, which is it all starts if we're going to mobilize workers, if we're going to achieve 90% of the workforce ready to go on strike, which is sort of what we need to achieve these really big wins, we need to start at the core of just having conversations with one another. But I would say on the student thing, because I think the student thing is really important because I get really frustrated, I mean, everyone does, really frustrated with the this way that education has become commodified and that there's this idea of your pay, you know, you're paying for university and therefore X, Y, Z should be given to you or we do see these instances where students have come up to us at the casuals network and really wanted to support us and they just have no idea about the conditions that we're in and that's that's on purpose right they don't know what's going on so if you're a student and you're listening to this ask your tutors and ask your Mm. supervisors like what are the conditions that they're under what are they getting paid for and what are they not getting paid for because you know it's not as though it's very easy for us to walk into a classroom and to say hey guys Mm. actually we're not getting paid for all these emails that you're sending for example there's no way we can do that and feel as though we were safe in our workplace or that there Mm. wouldn't be any sort of retribution Mm -hmm. so I think students if you are listening please get in touch if you want to get involved because I think there's nothing more powerful than students and workers together fighting against this because it's yeah as we always say it's that staff staff working conditions are student learning conditions so they're they'd be instrumental in this. And we see it in UCID, you know, watching students out there. Some of the speeches by UCID, you know, there was that UCID student. Did you see that that video of her? Uh, a student that was saying, you know, that they have 
receive very little support because of their disability um, mm. and that the really the people that were supporting that student in terms of assistance with assignments and everything were their tutors that they weren't getting paid for and it was so powerful to watch this student speak for their teachers. Anyway. Yeah. I think students get it. Like when I think there are a lot of students that probably, yeah, like I know when I started university I had no idea about the working conditions but as student, when students learn that I think it – they make the connection between, oh, perhaps the reason that we're moving to trimesters is actually why I can't, you know, see my tutor. Like, it, it makes sense. And I think exactly what Emily was saying, like, the you can see it, you see it, like, students get it. Students are integral um, to, to this. And it is, I feel like, stuff like that's happening. This is, like, education in action. It's, it's, like... I can't think of a better way to make students work ready for the workforce than to give them a crash course in industrial relations. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, that's the other thing that I was thinking is that, you know, we know that our students are all also workers and very, very, very often exploited workers. So whether students want to get active organising as students, you know, through things like the NUS, the NUS are holding a an education conference in Sydney uh, in probably kind of July or August this year. Um, with some of them who are really interested in deep organising models or whether students want to get involved organising as workers themselves. Yeah, you've, you've got nothing to lose but your chains. Through the last couple of years through the pandemic, obviously very challenging conditions, but also we've seen some green shoots, some seeds of good stuff bubbling up. What kind of examples of solidarity of care have you seen emerge? I would say being involved in... Groups like Kapal, so the Casualised, Unemployed and Precarious University Workers, around, you know, for example, we really wanted to, uh, some of us are national councillors within the union and so there's national council every year and we go and take our policies or we take our sort of, you know, what we'd like to see changed within the union's democratic structure, for example, and it's not always overly successful in terms of outcomes but actually some of those, you know, the last two years that I've been involved with that, the absolute care that I've received from fellow workers Mm. is just keeps me going in a climate where it's quite sad being at university in a sense you know there's just not much going on there's not as many people on campus and there's not you know it's um you know I'm a PhD student as well and I hear stories of um, previous pre-pandemic sort of PhD cohorts that all get together and do all these things and so I mean it's not really an answer to your question but I think the for, for me the care has been honestly around other precarious workers as well it's been the most inspiring sort of care and it's just kept me going and 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 just total um faith in one another i think as well which i don't know if i'd experienced in many other areas of my life as much or i guess i don't know there's this kind of common cause that you're working towards but i guess that's you know and obviously i think that there are these instances where you get so much there are periods of immense solidarity from permanent staff members as well which is vital and we've made this really clear and you know this is one of the biggest issues in terms of the dispute for example because this is another way in which everyone is separated and so no one in the casuals network for example doing a dispute on marking wants their subject coordinators Mm. to to face any repercussions and we've made it extraordinarily clear in our communications that this is we don't have an issue with permanent staff members who are subject coordinators because we like we've been you know and many have been told by subject coordinators that you know they understand that these are terrible conditions for everyone um so i think that there are those instances where we get you know people stand up for us Mm. and make noise for us and 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 show up for us i think is really encouraging Mm. it's very standard practice now it's it's standard practice enough that i feel confident i definitely won't get anyone specific into trouble for subject coordinators when they send us our marking allocations, for example, for the subject or, you know, inform us that we can't get paid for meetings um, for a subject or whatever to say, I disagree with this practice in writing in the email that they send us. It's very standard practice now. Um, and it's pretty amazing because of, of all of that stuff that we talked about, about the, the work to fracture the solidarity amongst workers, something which seems kind of potentially small like that is actually quite a brave act of resistance and the fact that it's quite standard practice now is pretty amazing. Um, The other kind of solidarity of care that I thought I might mention was with 
So as Kapow was starting out, um, one of the things that we did was talk to a whole bunch of other um, union organizers. So from Rafu, from Uwu, from the Unemployed Workers Union, from a couple of sex worker orgs, places where people were trying to make things better for workers in a whole bunch of different um, sectors and, and contexts. And that was quite amazing that people would be really willing to to share their knowledge with us to, to help us win. It was pretty beautiful. Network solidarity. Mm. You mentioned this relationship between ongoing staff and casual staff. As precariously employed casual staff in this environment, what do you need from people like me who are ongoing staff? Well, I think we all need the same thing, which is that we all need to fix our working conditions. One of the kind of extraordinary things is that as we like fix the workload system for ongoing academic staff, we create heaps more hours for casually employed staff. Um, as we fix the, the way that professional staff are kind of distributed in these really chaotic ways across the university so that they're not even actually able to really hold the systems of the university, that derails everybody else's working experience. So I think, I think we all need the same thing. Obviously, the kind of intensity of the need does increase a bit when when people are kind of, yeah, yeah. there's definitely a lot more, you know, and I'm very privileged amongst precarious workers because I've, you know, I've managed to snag a bunch of contracts and sort of patch them together and it's it's not as dire as it is for some. So there's always someone who's doing worse, but, but ultimately we will solve this problem or not um, together and, and we will all experience the the impact of that success or that failure. Yeah, I guess I just reiterate, like, when Sam just already said, like, we all, in the end of the day, need the same things. But I think when permanent staff show their solidarity with insecure workers and um, casualised workers through, um, you know, sharing things like the petitions that we've made or supporting the campaigns that we run, it's, I think that's, it goes a long way. And, it, um, yeah, when, when permanent staff show up as part of their union and participate and, um, yeah, amplify the voices of insecure workers. Yeah, I think there's important points there about having conversations, but that solidarity of care and actually showing up and providing material support, part of developing that infrastructure of resistance and Mm. and organisation. Well, one thing I would say is, yeah, that there is a book called No Shortcuts and Mm. there's actually a lot of really great um, knowledge in there. Um, So if you are a permanent staff member and you're wanting to get a bit more involved, I mean, you know, there are things I could, you know, I'd love to be able to hold workplace meetings, for example. I know other casuals that would like to do the same. The difference is that they're often in quite precarious positions where if, you know, universities or departments specific, they're not, you know, full of union members, for example, it might be really scary for a casual worker. So, you know, identifying the casuals that are, you know, union members or in their casuals networks in your departments, having conversations with them, but also, you know, reading no shortcuts and having a look, you know, we've adopted at the NTU, deep organising, Theoretically, and uh, but we definitely you follow. Know it. No, <laughs> but we definitely. I mean, that's something that we, you know, deep organising at at casuals networks across the country is yeah. something that we. You know, it's a it's a method that we practice, and it's extraordinarily successful. We've seen the successes, and you can read the successes in No Shortcuts. You can look at the Chicago Teachers Union, mm-hmm. for example. And you don't have to wait for a go ahead from a union hierarchy in order to do this stuff, do you? No, because you will yeah. wait forever. So please don't. Oh, I guess one thing that I would say is that it is, I, I guess I feel like Pan possibly kind of said this, but it is pretty lovely when ongoing staff insist that we are at least seen as casual staff. It, that, that is very, I was, I am lucky enough to actually attend staff meetings, which again is the result of um, an ongoing staff member sort of hustling a bit to, to make sure that I could actually be there. And um, there was some talk about a staff photo and one of my permanent colleagues said, so are the casual teachers going to be asked to be in the photo? You know, that those just those kinds of moments which there's this there's this kind of notion of us as as casual workers that we don't actually really exist or we sort of shouldn't really exist. Um, and when we are probably around between 60 and 70% of the workforce, this it's actually really unconscionable, but it's a kind of it's a lie that everybody participates in to some extent. And so re- resisting against that I think is quite powerful again again for all of us because it reveals the truth of our of our actual working conditions as and our universities i guess just as a final note it's 
very different to what you're sort of saying, but if we're talking, you know, if this conversation has galvanized some people, made some people feel interested, you know, I think what we're doing with the a new NTU campaign right now is we're focusing on making sure that union members in universities are eligible to vote. We know that participation has been quite low in past elections at an executive level. I think this tells us that people haven't been given the tools to be able to feel as though they can, you know, change or they've got the power to uh, determine their own direction of the union. Um, So have a look at your address in your union account. Make sure it's up to date because we're getting postal ballots because I just think it's really important to start participating in these um, in these tools that we have to be able to start trying to achieve this collective action. Um, so, yeah, making sure that if you are a member, you're getting registered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Union democracy, it turns out it's a good idea. Fuck, my ballot's on its way to South Australia somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Don't be like Ben. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am not your role model. (laughs) And we know that this is particularly bad for casuals because casuals move round lots. Mm -hmm. You know, we were calling people who we know are very active in the union and they didn't even know if their ballots were up to date. Um, Sorry, their postal addresses were up to date. So this is, yeah, let's get the most precarious people as well, the the biggest opportunity to be able to participate. Yeah. Pan, Emily, Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us at the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun. Thanks. And thanks to Pan and Em for coming. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. The state of workplace relations in universities is not just about the staff, academic and professional alike. It's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. Academic working conditions are students' learning conditions. So what do we do about this? Have those conscious and deliberate conversations with your colleagues about your workplace conditions. Facilitate those networks of mutual care and solidarity. Call out bullshit and demand better conditions. And most importantly, get organised. This is what a real organic workplace culture is based on. Not some shut up, be happy framework for culture that's imposed from above by management and HR. A reminder that you can support the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast by clicking on the like and subscribe buttons and or sending through a dollar or two on Ko-Fi to help me cover the costs of sharing the EDC with the world. And if you like what you hear, please do share the episode links in your networks. Any and all of that support is so much appreciated. I'm Ben Habib, and you've been listening to the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast. Much love and solidarity.